Two, two ladies with me. Uh, one is absolutely no stranger to the to the radio, and especially to the legal hour and to the leadership hour, and that is none other than Shyam. So, alaikum Shyam. Assalamu alaikum, Shyam, and all the listeners. And then we got uh, we got uh, with us as a surprise guest, um, and she joins Shyam tonight because we're going to be looking at the constitution and why the constitution is important for this country. We've got. Uh, Fadla with us. Fadla, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Fadla, for a moment, you, I forgot your surname. Adams. Adams, of course, your most common surname <laughs> in the book. Assalamu alaikum, Fadla Adams. Um, Fadla, uh, Fadla is uh, also an attorney and she is with the Human Rights Commission. And um, But tonight she's not sitting here in a capacity as Human Rights Commission. She's sitting here in a capacity as an attorney in the midst of our community, in the midst of the community struggle for justice, for um, an equal society. And of course, the constitution of this country has been fought for. I mean, we've heard earlier on from Nazima how they fought for liberation. And of course, one of that fights was really about getting the laws of this country to be subjected to a overarching constitution mm. to make sure that everybody is living in a South Africa that has rights and obligations. And tonight we're going to talk about some of these rights and obligations and why we have a constitution. And I see Shyam just sitting on with a constitutional bookie, David bookie. Mm-hmm. I think every lawyer has one of that somewhere stuck in their briefcases. I would hope so. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, because of course, when you don't know what to say in court, you can always refer to the constitution and hope that the magistrate or the judge understands it. So, Shyam, tell us what is a constitution. Maybe that's what. Can I just uh, quickly, Ikshan, um, just with regard, and I know that you explained, I mean, who's Fadla? I think it's important to note also that Fadla was also from UWC mm-hmm. and she did her um, master's. And I mean, I think people, some people won't even think of doing a master's, but she did a master's in the protection of cultural rights um, in armed conflict. Mm-hmm. And the question was around Iraq. Yeah, was it yeah, Iraq? Yeah. Um, and then, and she also lived in Geneva. So, I mean, I think that she breathes both the constitution and international law. So, mm. I'm going to, I mean, I, I, I think that Fadla was probably at the beginning. I would want to give more my experience as possibly in the constitutional court. Um, yes. And, and, and to be able to just explain, Don't worry, you know, what will, that, that is all extract, about. We will extract enough information from Fadla tonight. And, I mean, uh, we, um, so Fadla, you were in the, um, so basically your master's is in what in constitutional law well actually it was in international human rights law but with a specific focus on my thesis at least was the protection of cultural property during times of armed conflict but we're talking about like what nearly 15 if not more 
Fadla yeah. Jemaah, come with your bayi outis, you're not so old. Yeah, <laughs> quite a while ago. Okay. And obviously there's been a lot more since, but um, that was just a, a natural progression in terms of international human rights, but then also how that can then be um, contextualized within the South African context and our legislation and at the parliamentary level. So Fadla, just to, just to give us a bit of a... Uh, what would have been your, if you had to put into one sentence or two sentences mm. this armed conflict uh, thesis, what, what would it be? I mean, I think, uh, in a nutshell, and I recall actually speaking to Shafiq Morton at the time that the, the thesis was released about this topic. It is very clearly that. During armed conflict, places of cultural significance, so what we call our tangible heritage, are specifically targeted, mm. albeit that international humanitarian law and generally international law prohibits the targeting of places um, which are of cultural significance, so mosques, um, religious centers, cultural centers, museums, etc. And those places which house items of cultural significance are often purposely targeted with a view to destroy a particular population or group of people or ethnic grouping so that when the war, and I'm saying it in very simple terms, when that conflict or war is over, there is nothing for that remaining group of people, should they have survived it, the, the conflict, to hold on to or to look back to in terms of who they were as a people. And in a, a nutshell, basically, we have seen a shift in terms of the international discourse around what is a war crime and what is a crime against humanity and more and more that we, we are seeing that cultural crimes if it can be phrased in that way, is being um, categorized within these definitions as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I just want to say I'm just a bit confused as to how do you tell someone who's enlisted as in, into a foreign army, let's call it the, the U.S. Army, hmm. uh, who don't have a lot of education. I mean, he gets uh, recruited into the army. He gets dispatched uh, into a place like Iraq, hmm. and he comes across a, 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 a relic of serious value, whether it's a statue, whether it's a museum that holds valuable mm. coins. How do you tell somebody? How, do you get him to read your thesis before he goes? <laughs> uh, in it, it, it's very funny, but uh, when they get enlisted, I think part of the fundamental trainings is that they do get mm. educated on uh, international humanitarian law. So what is Geneva law and Hague law? So it's the actual law of armed conflict, how they conduct the war, the means and methods of warfare, the type of weapons they use, the manner in which those weapons are dispatched and in the targets. And that is an integral part of the training which okay, takes place. Okay, so they do get that training. Absolutely. However, I must say that often these places are targeted and they say it was because of military necessity and the soldiers will say we were following damage. superior orders. Yeah, mm. and collateral damage, superior mm. orders, and that they cannot be held accountable. And that's okay. unfortunate. An interesting uh, topic. Topic for a whole uh, other discussion. For another discussion. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I would love to actually interview exactly on that and especially the the view of the United Nations on some of these issues that arise in armed conflict. Absolutely. Shyam, yes. 
can we get, get on with the constitution? Yeah. <laughs> it's always nice to divert, but yeah, I think some of the listeners are are rearing for for that for that talk on the constitution, and uh, maybe we we'll just start off with telling us what is a constitution. I mean, the, our constitution. I mean, we obviously we had previous constitution, but the difference with this constitution is that it is the supreme law of the land, and no other law or even government action or policy supersedes the provisions of the constitution. So, I mean, if you compare it to pre-1994, you had the constitution, but you had um, parliament could supersede, you know, certain provisions that was in, in that constitution. And so, I mean, that is the fundamental difference. So it is, it was, it was approved way back, I mean, in 1996. And like I said before, it, it, has what they call, I mean, very simply, it has the Bill of Rights, mm. um, which is within the Constitution, um, and then, and many of those rights also come out of, um, you know, the the, the 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 struggle. A lot of people that came together, uh, that drafted the Constitution, and I think, you know, always going back to UWC, um, because I mean, it it was always a, a proud moment that, you know, institutions like the uh, now the current De La Mar Center um, housed a lot of previous ministers and um, comrades I would say that was key in the drafting of the constitution um, and it has a lot of other provisions it deals with cooperative governance it deals with um, like the uh, what they call the chapter okay. 9 institutions which is like the South African Human Rights Commission um, the gender commission it deals with um, the the powers of national, local and provincial government. It also has uh, details around the police. It has details, um, it sets out the powers um, of, for example, the police. It sets out the structures of our courts. And so it's a, it's a fundamental document. Um, that guides us and and many many of us say that this is a transformative piece of 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 law yes, i'm just let's break it down to a little bit simpler than that yeah um i want to ask the question you know you're speaking about almost how the constitution affects the man in the street yes but the guiding document to my mind mm. is it guides the lawmakers yes uh, more than anything else because the lawmakers must be vigilant yes. that they cannot breach the constitution uh, in drafting these laws. Fadla, you want to take a bite at that, at that uh, particular um, comment? Sure. I think in terms of the lawmakers and uh, parliament being the ultimate body which um, the, or the legislature and there are several or, or at least there is a legislature legislature in every province throughout South Africa, but national parliament, the one housed uh, in Cape Town, is the ultimate legislature in the country. And so laws that are passed or, or rather established at a national level have to pass through the houses of parliament. So the National Assembly, the National Council of Provinces. And yes, it is very important that it is consistent with the Constitution because we have seen, and there are several examples where laws have been found to be inconsistent with the constitution mm -hmm. and we often find that these decisions are made at the at the court structure which Siam correctly pointed out earlier that the constitution in and of itself makes provision for a host of different matters including the judiciary and um, 
it is the, the the founding document and then of course those the judiciary in itself the high court the magistrates court the supreme court of appeal and the constitutional court have their own enabling legislation which gives further details mm. and often we find that those courts have actually found pieces of law those from the apartheid era even more recent ones to be inconsistent with the letter and spirit of the constitution and have struck it down uh, we do have a system of appeals where um, uh, the uh, judgment can be appealed, and, and I'm not sure if we'll have time to get into that this evening, um, but there has been declarations and judgments made at the Constitutional Court where Parliament has been forced, and Siam has previously spoken about, for example, the Muslim marriages matter, where the judiciary in turn has instructed Parliament to ensure that legislation is enacted mm. to give effect to what the constitutional dictates are in the Bill of Rights. Um, so yeah, that is is uh, it's very important that we have our laws that are in alignment with the constitution. Uh, yeah, look, Shyam, we've obviously as 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 lawyer activists, mm -hmm. you know, over the years, you know, we've we we look at every opportunity to um, to challenge a law. To, if you think think a law is like you know unfair and unconstitutional. Um, you know, we we normally like test that. Now, tell us of some of these cases. You know, and I mean more. Maybe you should make a specific reference mm. to many of the the Muslim uh, women, especially that came to um, to, to, to special places like the Women's Legal Center to challenge. You know the. Um, the legality of some of the laws. We're going to just go for a quick ad break. When we come back, then we're going to discuss some of these cases, you know, especially the ones that was uh, taken on by the Women's Legal Center. The Legal Hour with Ihsan Higgins. And we are back with the legal hour, and we got with Ashiam Samai, and we got Fadla Adams of the uh, and uh, both attorneys uh, in the human rights space. And uh, of course, you know, if you're in the human rights space, you need a sound knowledge of the constitution, and that's what we're talking about tonight—the constitution of this country. Now, of course, I knew when we had this uh, discussion about the Constitution, people are going to jump up and down and say, yeah, but the Quran is the ultimate Constitution, which we absolutely agree with. However, we are living in South Africa, and uh, this is obviously for every Muslim attorney, for every Muslim lawyer, that's always, the, you know, what you watch out for, you know, that you cannot... Um, infringe on any of the rights given by the Quran or the Sunnah to Muslims, and therefore it's a it's a kind of a, a balancing act, you know, that uh, one must be vigilant of your Islamic duties all the time. Fadla, you want to give a, a, a comment on that uh, introduction? Okay, sure, Ihsan. I think, as you correctly say. We are living in a society and in a country where it's not a Muslim country, so we are not bound uh, in terms of Sharia law. But as Muslims, of course, within our culture and within our practice, within our religious dictates, we adhere to the principles of Sharia law insofar as possible, um, where it does not conflict with the laws of the land. And I think as recent as last week, there was a discussion on VOC where um, I can't recall who the person was that was being interviewed, but that person made it very clear that you cannot be um, 
doing something and saying, but it's within Sharia, but it's in total contravention with the laws of the land. I think the hadiths are very clear around if you are living in a country which is not your own and it is not practicing Sharia law, that you have to then comply with the laws of that land. Otherwise, you yourself could be subject to uh, criminal action or any other form of um, sanction. Um, most importantly, and I think Islam in and of itself is very, very entrenched in the concept of justice and fairness. And that is paramount to how we as Muslims conduct ourselves and carry out our activities and also respectful of the environments in which we find ourselves in. And so, yes, there might be instances where there are inconsistencies between Sharia law and the laws of the land. For example, um, somebody steals something and you hear people saying, yeah, you can't do that here. It, you, if you do that, you're going to find yourself uh, possibly in jail um, because that is obviously a criminal offense in this country we can't do that so there's also other examples and I'll use a personal example many years ago I was part of a task team that was going out looking at um, the practice of falaka where you get a hiding and it was a very very gruesome form um, and we had to do an investigation. I was just going to say now that falaka is worse than pak. You know? Yeah, I mean, uh, these were, like easy these were young uh, males who were being bound um, by in a scorpion position, and that is where your hands are tied behind your back to your feet, and they were being beaten so, so abusively and badly um, in a bid to reform uh, whatever challenges they were going through in terms of substance abuse. And we had to go out to these places and explain to the owners of these schools, these reform schools, that this is in complete contravention of uh, the constitution and international law and I mean it was very difficult because as a Muslim I understand why the parents felt the need to send the children to these institutions and the owners of those places that are perpetrating these acts are fully convinced in what they are doing being in line with Sharia um, but when you explain that it's actually a criminal act I, I think it's very difficult to fully um, get someone to understand that you have to comply with the laws of the country that you find yourself in. Um, Siam, I think you had an example also in terms of women, women's issues, um, where uh, Islamically there might be a divergent views in terms of what the Quran, what the Quran dictates on, what the Constitution is, and we can always argue around conflict of laws. But I think, at least within the South African jurisprudence and what the courts have declared, it has been very clear that there has always been an acknowledgement of the role that Sharia law and the importance of Sharia law to Muslims in this country, unlike other countries for that matter. If do you want to add to sure. that in terms of yeah. the yeah, I mean I, I'm just going to come back to to the issue around um, the the Muslim marriages, and I think that we also need to acknowledge that it was our courts through. You know, applying the constitution that has come to the aid of of women um, who who faced um, you know challenges um, after divorce or even after the death of the spouse, and and sadly, I mean, even though last year the Women's Legal Center we won, um, you know, the, the Muslim marriages uh, case, the state sadly has now um, appealed that particular case, um, and we will most probably only be seeing. Um, um, you know, the hearing of the matter in the thick third or fourth quarter in the Supreme Court of Appeal. Um, 
So in the meantime, I mean, Muslim couples um, in particularly, I mean, is still not afforded any protection. But what have, I mean, the courts have come to the aid by applying the constitution. So so some of the developments, and I think it's important, we started out way back, which was um, the, the Rylands versus Idros case, which was the first matter that went to the constitutional court, which recognized that Muslim marriages is a contract um, from which certain proprietary obligations um, flow. And this was one of the reasons um, where they imposed, for example, some form of consequence of what would normally come out of civil marriage onto a Muslim marriage. And that was one of the first cases in 1997. And, and that's historic. I mean, it was the application of a constitution. And thereafter, we did the Daniels matter, um, which the constitutional court decided that the Muslim spouse in a monogamous marriage had the right to inherit and to claim maintenance from the deceased spouse. And this is obviously in the context of um, intestate succession. Now, I've said monogamous, and so the because the next case after that, we do know that you have um, you know, second wives that you know, they, they, they live in polygam- polygynous marriages and, um, you know, by applying the Daniels case, it never really assisted them, and you know that because you were <laughs> the attorney for, for um, Mrs. Hassam um, in this particular case, and the Women's Legal Center obviously came in as um, the friend of the court and that matter also went to the constitutional court and it held that the right to claim maintenance from a deceased spouse was also to be extended to polygynous mm. Muslim marriages. Before you continue, mm. I just want to comment on, on that, you know, probably because I was obviously personally involved in the case uh, as being the attorney of record for Mrs. Hassam, but so many people are listening to this now and they're mm. thinking um, it will never happen to me. Yes. Because many women out there don't even know that their husbands are actually married to somebody else as well. Mm. Yes. They can sit there looking at the husband now, sitting there, listening to the radio, sitting on the couch nicely, drinking his tea. <laughs> but the question is, mm. is he married to someone else or not? I mean, yeah. and, and this is exactly what Mrs. Hassam faced. She didn't even know that her husband was married. So when you spoke about the Daniels case, in the Daniels case, the court, you know, obviously they applied the constitution. And they just but included they did, spouse. But, no, but they just said, no, it must only be for uh, monogamous marriages. Yes. Many women don't even know that they are in a polygamous marriage. And that is why we took the Assam matter to court, because women don't even know of the time mm. uh, that their husband is married to someone else. Yes. But, I mean, I, also in both of these cases, I mean, the husband... Um, was both I mean they it, it, it was in the context of intestate succession yes. so they both died mm. so I mean there are also other cases which was which uh, you know especially in divorce because that is much more challenging um, because it uh, you know in a divorce I mean the husband tend to oppose most of the time the matters and here you had other cases which was um, for example, the and many people don't know about this particular case. It's a matter that we've done, which was Rose versus Rose. Um, it's unreported, but it was also Rose was a, a nurse and uh, she wanted to claim maintenance and a share of her husband's pension. Mm. And um, 
and and in that particular case also i mean the court applied it was in the western cape high court and um we the 50 percent of the pension was actually allocated to miss rose mm-hmm. and then last week i mean not last week was it two weeks ago we spoke about the rule 43 mm-hmm. um which was the interim maintenance um and and in that particular matter also i mean we we know that that if you institute this divorce, that you can claim interim maintenance. But all of this could not have happened mm. if you didn't just have the constitutional court because there would have been just a plain application to say there's no law. What are you going to apply? But the court developed the law. They and read that's in, job. They and that to, is what yeah. they do. Mm. And there's other matters besides the Muslim marriages. I mean, there's also, for example, the Kamishal case, which was a, a matter um, which is sexual, which dealt with sexual violence, but it held the state accountable um, uh, in relation to what happened to Kamishal. But here, the court developed what they call the common law. And this is what the Constitutional Court can also do, is to be able to develop the, 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 the common law in line with the vision of the Constitution and what the Bill of Rights. So it's a document that is consistently pushing the boundaries um, and to be able to ensure that we live a life which is, um, you know, free from violence, that we live, a, you know, in a country that is, you know, non-sexist, non-racist, mm-hmm. and, and this is the aspiration of a constitution. The beauty about it, especially for Muslims, is that, you know, that in the final sermon of the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that was essentially almost the same thing. You know, like, you know, non, non-racism, non-sexism. <coughs> And yet, when we wrote the constitution in this country, mm. a lot of Muslims were opposed to it. And yet, Fadwa, I don't even want to comment on that because Islam is about equality, it's about uh, unity, uh, it's about um, all these good things that the constitution speaks about. Obviously, there's certain things that people don't agree with, but the concept itself. Absolutely. And I think if one looks at the actual genesis of Islam and how it came into being, and if we look at the time of Jahiliya, before we had a system of Sharia law and before the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam actually um, received wahi and was able to give direction uh, to his followers, um, there was a free-for-all, women were being ill-treated, the girl child was being buried alive. We had an absolute disregard for the recognition uh, and value of the person, let alone the woman for that matter. Uh, I won't get into the debate around women's rights, that I will leave for Siham. But I always find it bizarre that um, many Muslim people are actually against the principles of the constitution when there is so much similarity between Islam and human rights and uh, the, the, the pureness of Islam in terms of what it seeks, and I mean from a rights-based perspective, what it seeks to promote and what it seeks to protect and how that is actually in congruence with the constitution.
mm-hmm. and if you look at the constitution as this alive document that we work with on a daily basis um, and you'll actually see more and more how there are similarities and yes we do have conflicts and yes there's inconsistencies here and there but by and large you will find that there's a lot of similarities between what it is that it dictates in terms of the right to equality um, the right to freedom and security of the person the inherent dignity of the individual and yes the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in his final sermon made it very clear that we are in a nutshell all the same um, uh, a, a white person is no different from a black person that we are all uh, from the same creator ultimately um, and I think if one has that uppermost in your mind in terms of understanding and reading the constitution you will see how much in alignment it actually is with Islamic values um, it is unfortunate that there is a narrative out there and particularly we find this coming up around election time when uh, high profile political figures do resort to electioneering which seems to pull on emotive issues which are de- divisive in terms of religion versus the constitution um, just driving here I was looking at posters on the way and I laugh because I think it's really unfortunate that these are political figures who can actually cause so much destructiveness um, and misunderstanding with the public when you say you know we want you to bring back the death penalty and we want um, you know get rid of laws same-sex marriages and get rid of laws and that are um, termination of pregnancies and ultimately uh, that would be in violation of the Constitution and the saddest part is you cannot just with a snap of a finger remove laws which have now been passed and are in alignment with the Constitution and think that when you vote for a particular party that that party is going to help take that law away it doesn't work that way it's a very 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 complex system to amend laws in that manner um, and and that means in effect in amending the Constitution um, yeah I'm going to stop it at that point uh, okay no, that's fine um, Shyam, just to, 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 to come back to, to the whole concept of the, the Constitution, you know, people are also scared of, you know, what's going to happen, you know, uh, any political party that takes over this country after this election, mm-hmm. they cannot just nilly-willy mm-hmm. go do no. what they want to no. do, because that's the beauty of having a Constitution. Yes. So I wanted to just to comment on that because I think there's a lot of rhetoric out there that mm. you know that this these people are going to take over the country. They're going to take over pieces of land. They're going to take over people's houses. Mm. Just tell sure. us what does the Constitution? What guarantees are there in the Constitution pertaining to these things? Well, I mean amendments to the Constitution. I mean we could see even now with this the the provision of Section 25. I mean there is massive processes that you need to follow which is in the Constitution. Mm. Um, and, and certain provisions, I mean, you need to have like more than uh, like almost two-thirds to be able to change. And I think that's the importance of our Constitution. It is the highest law of the country. It is, it is and the Bill of Rights, for example, I mean, it, it protects fundamental rights, whether or not it's your housing rights, your land rights, and you can't just change it. You mm. can't just have, a, a for example, um, a... a, a political party saying I'm going to bring in the death penalty I mean it's not going to happen I mean in in um, for example the one of the maybe if I'd like can also speak about it I mean one of the the first cases was it's it versus Makanwani and I mean it was very clear in terms of the interpretation that was done that no matter the political parties it's not going to happen mm. we will not go back 
in terms, in terms of, of corporal punishment. Yeah. We can't go back in terms of capital of, of punishment, capital yeah. punishment, mm. etc. And and people need to understand that when political parties go out and say we will bring back the, the, the death penalty, death penalty, well, you must also understand. I mean, what is the world that we want? Or what is the South Africa that we want? And I know that people want to bring in, for example, the death penalty, but that is not going to stop, for example, not across the world is not going to stop crime. Mm. Um, and we can't go there. There needs to be other ways and mechanisms to be able to address it. Um, and, and how does that look? What does it look like? And we need to, when political parties say, says we're going to do a range of things, including change the constitution, it can't just happen. No, no, but you, um, I think you must just maybe qualify that because there are, of course, mechanisms. Yes, there is mechanisms. To change certain of the provisions of a constitution. And maybe just tell us a little bit about that because it's it's I would agree with you that it is insurmountable, it's almost impossible yeah. for a political party to come into power and say, I'm going to change the constitution, because there's a whole lot of things they need to do to get to that point. Maybe you just can tell us a little bit about that. I mean, we did this before, where we said, I mean, certain provisions requires more than two-thirds um, of parliament to be able to change, uh, you know, certain provisions, and it's in particular around um, the Bill of Rights. There mm -hmm. are also other provisions that deals possibly more with um, uh, maybe, you know, how government operates or deals with maybe intergovernmental relations, etc., that requires much less, which will possibly maybe be a 50 plus one but if you see the amount of parliamentarians which is in um, uh, in parliament um, you need a huge amount to be able to bring about that change okay, we're, we're gonna talk a little bit more about the potential for change and the processes attached to that change after the break yes Assalamualaikum and we are back with the legal hour. We're talking about the constitution and I'm, I'm going to thank you know the people for sending in all the questions. It seems like uh, the political bones uh, you know in people have been, have been tickled tonight and they're all coming up with strategies you know to improve South Africa mm. and that's the reason why we're talking about the constitution because if anything, if anything happens in this country, you know, despite who takes over this country, if the ANC loses at the polls and some other party or coalition comes about, takes over the country, they will still be bound to the constitution. Sham, we've heard now lots of people have this idea that once you have a majority in parliament that you can change the constitution and that's so far from the truth. Yeah, I mean, if that was, I mean, the, the ANC is there, I mean, certain provisions wasn't just, couldn't just be changed. But I mean, we must also be very careful. Um, we can't just also think that, you know, certain things by changing the constitution that we're going to change behavior, we're going to change how things are done um, on the ground. Um, and, and how it impacts on the love reality of people. Um, we know that there's laws. The, the Constitution is a guiding document and it's something that we need to ensure that it gets implemented and we must also give value to it. Um, and it's, it's, it's more than just... Um, it, it's more than just a document, it's more than just a law, but I mean it requires people to, to, to implement that particular document. So changing laws, like I said before, doesn't mean that it's going to bring about you know, like a non-racist, non-sexist, um, equal society. I mean, we've seen that. But it's something that we all have to work towards and we all have a responsibility to build 
um, and develop um, our country. And I think that is very important. We need to, we need, we must, we, yes, we can criticize, but I think we need to be solution driven. We need to be active citizens and we need to understand where this constitution comes from. It was blood, sweat and tears. I mean, not just tears. I mean, people died for this particular constitution. There was the multi-party um, negotiations. And I said, like I, like I said before, it was wonderful. Although I only started at UWC in 1994, I mean, these processes started before. And um, the, the um, UWC was integral in terms of, um, you know, uh, making submissions around the Constitution. But just going back, I mean, formal negotiations began in 1990. I mean, we know that it started before. Mm. We know that it started before that period, but let me start with the formal negotiations that started in, in um, 1991. And everybody, I mean, those that still can remember, was there was CODESA, which is a convention for democratic South Africa. And, and here the parties agreed on the process um, of a transitional constitution. And the CODESA, we all also know, broke down. Um, after, after, uh, uh, so I think it was plus my, I think it was in 1992. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the major points of dispute was the size of the supermajority that would be required for the assembly to adopt the constitution. So, I mean, the, um, there was a lot of issues that, that happened around that. And we know that whoever was part of that negotiations and our current president was integral in, in, in driving the negotiations around the Constitution mm. um, and then around April 1993 the parties returned to the negotiations and in, in and here is what was called the what uh, was it the multi-party negotiation process I mean yeah. M, the MMP NP. M some will MP say NP, some yeah. will say it's Godessa too. I mean, this is where I was in matric at the time. Um, went to UWC and and by you know by 1994 we could see the effects um, of what these people did. Um, so the parties to the to this multi-party negotiation adopted this idea that to draft the inter it was the interim constitution was drafted uh, in 1993 and it was formally then um, adopted and it came into in force on the 27th of April 1994 and that was our Freedom Day. So I know many people, I mean there was a lot of negotiation, there was mm. a lot of submissions that was made mm. um, around the constitution and I think um, the constitution is here to stay and I think that we need to be able able to, to, to own it, to adopt it. It's our constitution. We must stop saying that, um, you know, that this is not, um, it, it wasn't a democratic process. It was as democratic that it could have been in 1991. I mean, our country was on the brink of um, war. Hmm. And, and we need to accept that. It seems like people have amnesia yes. um, <laughs> around these issues. Well, I said, Especially hmm. when it comes to uh, election time. Yeah, I think I, look, I sat through the whole of the constitutional process with, uh, uh, because I was at the time I was a lobbyist at in Parliament, and yes, it was extremely democratic. I mean, everybody had this say. Precisely. And I think the reason why the Muslims are so angry about not getting, you know, a Sharia constitution is, I mean, if you took take one point six percent of the population in South Africa, it makes sense that you're not going to get what you want in terms of that constitution. Is it that right, Fadla? 
That's correct, uh, absolutely correct. And I think it was a very participative process. Um, See, so yeah, I mean, actually the Constitutional Assembly yeah. uh, ultimately yes. that, that did the adoption. And I think it is uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa, who was a chairperson at one point in t and the driving force behind the adoption of the final constitution uh, as we see it today. Of course, it's been subject to several amendments, but it is just sort of technical amendments, nothing, nothing uh, too groundbreaking in my opinion mm. um, and I also think that yes you can't always please everybody but because it was such a participative process and it had gone through I mean if we remember the context under which this constitutional drafting was taking place we were in a transitional phase from an apartheid structure that we were in shifting to this concept of the government of national unity uh, I remember uh, being on, on school and seeing GNU everywhere and in my understanding it was a GNU and that meant some kind of animal. Little did I know <laughs> it was actually government of national unity but mm. I mean um, and I remember that in, in our own little protest and the walking in the streets um, protesting for education at the time and Model C schools, and, I mean not Model C, just the uh, rejecting the concept of it at the time um, we had seen all this narrative around a government of national unity and that this constitution would be our guiding document and so I think in as far as possible it did seek to please um, and satisfy largely what the needs of the, the public were at the time and I also want to say and I'm going to bring in a little bit of international comparative lawyer that the constitution literally in the drafting and in its analysis on a more technical level looked at constitutions from all over the world principles from almost every country and to date the South African constitution is seen as one of the most progressive constitutions in the world um, I think currently yeah I, I at last check, I hadn't seen any other constitution that had actually surpassed us. In many instances, other countries and courts in other countries are actually looking for guidance from the South Africa constitution when they interpret their own laws because it's so expansive and because we have 27 rights in our Bill of Rights, which others don't. Mm. Um, and that's, I think, something that we can be proud of given, I mean, we're going in for, what, 25 years of democracy now. Um, and I think it's something that we can be proud of, at least if, if nothing else. Yes, it is trial and error, and there's areas that do need further refinement, and, and we have to acknowledge that as part of our growth as a society. Um, but by and large, I mean, the Constitution as it stands is a very, very impressive document, in my opinion. Yeah. We've got some uh, comments here about the Constitution, and I mean, maybe Fadla, I'm going to draw on your experience, you know, seeing that you dealt with the issue of, of war. Uh, because somebody comes with a question here, it says, I wonder if a coup d'etat mm. is staged, does that mean the automatic abolishment of an existing constitution? No, no, but this is the type of questions that people have, and I mean, of course, you know... Uh, the, maybe you just want to comment quickly on it. Firstly, uh, yeah, just on the coup d'etat. Coup d'etat. Yeah. Uh, see, yeah it, yes. it, it's very clear that the Constitution does make reference to instances of a state of emergency and where in some instances rights can mm. be suspended. Um, I think it's towards the end of the Bill of Rights. Yeah, it's very clear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, see, I'm going to go into that. But I, I want to say, Ikshan, that 
there has been a recognition, particularly from the side on the on a government side as well as from NGOs and Chapter Nine institutions, and I mean Chapter Nine in terms of the bodies established by the Constitution, Human Rights Commission, Public Protector Commission for Gender Equality, and the Cultural Linguistic Rights Commission, um, that there is now a drive to popularize and publicize Know Your Constitution. And I think it is being driven largely by the Human Rights Commission at this stage where there is a need to educate the public in all 11 official languages, including sign language, around what the Constitution actually entails and what it means. So, for example, the question that's just come through to provide um, listeners and, and, let's say, laypersons on the street with a greater understanding of what does happen in a situation when there is a coup d'etat, how do we, what does the Constitution say, do laws just fall by the wayside and do we go on lockdown? Those kind of questions, and I think nowadays we're seeing that there's been a push to have this coming in this form of education, coming in at a, at a um, education, primary school and uh, high school level, as well even now at tertiary institutions um, where they are establishing mechanisms to educate the students so that we do have constitutional awareness. Because, And by my own um, observation, I have noticed that there's generally, even amongst lawyers ourselves, sometimes uh, a lack of understanding amongst us in terms of what the Constitution actually entails. Mm. Mm. Um, Sam, yeah. do you want to go into detail around it? No, no, but okay, first, yeah. let's just read some of these things. Uh, some very interesting stuff that came through, and I wanted to justice to this gentleman who wrote a very nice essay, which I'm going to read quickly. Sure. It says, yes, Assalamu alaikum, you mentioned Falaka just now, mm-hmm. and now one of your guests had gone to schools where young men were being tied up in the scorpion position and physically beaten up. Please note that this is not Falaka. Falaka is the whipping of the bare feet of someone. If one was to seek the guidance of authentic Islamic scholars, I'm confident that none would see what you have mentioned as Falaka to be permissible in the Sharia, and so South African law would not even need to be considered in this instance as what is being done is outside of the fold of Islam. I know that your guest may have given only an example. Mm. I felt prudent to clarify this, Jazakallah. I think it's a very good comment. Yes, Shukran, I do appreciate that, and I'm uh, fully aware of the definition of falaka. I mean, we were very, um, in our observations and findings, we did find that several young males were actually so severely beaten that they couldn't walk. Um, and they developed blisters and, and, I mean, it took months for them to fully recover. But then in some extreme circumstances, there was situations where people were tied up in a scorpion position. And yes, that is not falaka per se within the strict definition. Um, and that is obviously discussions that we had had with, uh, regardless of any form of torture or ill treatment being inflicted on someone, um, it's not permissible in terms of the constitution and just the laws of the land. You you, you can't, you just cannot do that. Um, yeah, so I, I apologize if that was a misinterpretation or maybe a misunderstanding, but shukran to the listener for the further uh, clarity around that. But I just to contextualize it, uh, that was merely an example of the extreme nature that um, this particular place had taken their understanding at of least of yeah. precisely. Yeah. No, but I think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm my, it's, it's mind-blowing to see what the people are coming up with uh, in terms of this constitutional discussion. I think, uh, I mean, there's one person that says that the youth must actually listen to this particular discussion because, you know, the youth actually forgot 
that all these things happened and you know the and, and what at what what effort and energy it took to get to a constitution yes. i think that's uh, very encouraging to hear mm. i mean we thought it would just be a sort of bland topic and it's the constitution and uh, this mm-hmm. living document but i'm very encouraged to hear that listeners are actually taking um to to the to the subject matter and are interested to know more about it it's a pity we are running mm. short on time well we are unfortunately running short on time and asahimel i kick so it's fine. I will. I, I, I know we need to greet. But yeah, I mean, we've had now obviously a, couple, a continuation of a few programs, and of course, sometimes you know you can't talk through these things within a space of 45 minutes. I mean, if you take ads away and all that. So, Fadla, if it's possible, you know, we can come back, you know, to this constitution because sure. I think the idea is to to bring the constitution to the to to to, to the to the consciousness of people to bring it to make it alive it's not just mm, a document yes. like a like the little white book i mean we can talk for for months about the constitution but uh, it, it seems like our listeners you know are really wanting to know more about the constitution and we're going to bring it to them yes and i think Ishan, can i just say people must just you know they they google a range of things Google the Constitution, and I think that they should actually try to just read, even if if it's just the chapter two. There cannot be any inconsistency um, with the Quran in relation to human dignity, equality. Equality. It speaks to a range of things, Um, and I think people shouldn't just listen. They should read what is in the Constitution and really understand where it came from. And, and how is it that we can all collectively make this a living document? Mm. It was written for the people of South Africa. Okay. And we need to be able to see ourselves within uh, that context. Okay, Shukran Shyam. And Father, any last comment you want to make? Now, I think that each of the 27 rights in the Bill of Rights can be an hour, if not more, discussion <laughs> yes, of in and course. of itself. So this is merely just a very surface-level discussion around the Constitution in a, in a simplistic, almost abstract kind of way. Um, but as Yam said, I would encourage the listeners, perhaps even go online and, and or go to your Chapter 9 institutions, even the Department of Justice. They give out these booklets for free. And there are pamphlets and, and documents available which um, deconstructs the the, the 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 constitution in a manner which is a lot easier to understand instead of legal terminology. Okay. So I would encourage listeners to do that. Shukran for that, Shiam and Fadla, so lawyers from yeah. Bukap, um, <laughs> and uh, Shukran very much for for giving us some insight tonight on the constitution and some of oh, the fine. issues arising from the constitution. So from my side, Ihsan Higgins, I'm gonna um, leave you till next week, inshallah. Someone, and I uh, say to everyone, Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.